0: Upper limb anatomy. So, what are the dermatomes of the upper limb? So, if you start on the lateral aspect of the shoulder, you've got C4, C5 over the anterior lateral arm, C6 over the lateral forearm on the radial side, extending down to cover the thumb, C7 is the medial aspect of the palm and the medial three fingers, and then That's C7. C8 is the little finger extending midway up the anterior aspect of the the arm. Then you have T1 on the inner aspect of the arm and T2 over the armpits. Saying that again from the anterior aspect of the arm starting with your hand over the deltoid. You've got C4, travelling down C5, travelling down C6 over the thumb c7 in the medial region c8 over the little finger t1 over the medial arm and t2 in the armpit t3 is starting to head towards the nipple area on the posterior aspect it's pretty much the same so wrapping your arm around the back over the posterior aspect of the humerus you have c4 dropping down c5 dropping down c6 over the thumb c6 over the middle aspect of the hand c7 over the medial aspect c8 t1 t2 so c4 over the lateral aspect of the shoulder c5 c6 over the thumb c7 in the middle c8 medial t1 t2 done Describe the cutaneous innervation of the hand. So you have the median nerve supplying the medial aspect of the hand to the middle of the ring finger and associated palmar surfaces and the fingertips on the dorsal surface over these areas. The ulnar nerve supplies the little finger and half of the ring finger on both sides. The radial nerve supplies the rest of the dorsum of the hand so, um, yeah, so the radial nerve supplies the dorsum of the hand, the ulnar nerve supplies the medial aspect of the hand front and back, and the median nerve supplies the lateral aspect of the hand on the palmar surface, as well as the fingertips of the lateral three and a half digits. Describe the superficial lymphatic drainage of the upper limb, so the superficial lymphatics originate from the lymphat- lymphat- lymphatic plexi in the hand and ascend mostly in the cephalic and basilar veins and ascend mostly alongside the cephalic and basilar veins some Some of the lymphatics accompanying the basilar vein will enter the cubital fossa um, and then from the cubital fossa. They will drain into the humeral axillary lymph nodes, then into the apical axillary lymph nodes. Um, most will travel with the cephalic vein and into the apical axillary lymph nodes, but some enter the deltopectoral lymph nodes earlier. Describe the cutaneous innervation of the hand. So the medial nerve will the median nerve will supply the medial aspect of the hand. No, it supplies the lateral aspect of the hand to the ring finger, and the associated palmar surfaces, and the fingertips on the dorsal surface. Surface. The ulnar nerve supplies the little and half the ring finger on both sides. The radial nerve supplies most of the dorsum of the hand with. The exception of the medial ulnar region. Describe the superficial lymphatic drainage of the upper limb. So, the superficial lymphatics originate from the lymphatic plexuses, plexi in the hand, and ascend mostly with the cephalic and basilar veins. Some accompanying the basilar vein will enter the cubital fossa. From here, they will travel travel along. the humerus up to the axillary lymph nodes then into the apical lymph nodes most travel with the cephalic vein and into the apical axillary lymph nodes but some into the deltopectoral lymph nodes earlier Describe the drainage of the deep lymphatics of the upper limb. So the deep lymphatics accompany the major deep vessels and terminate in the humeral axillary lymph nodes. These drain into the axillary lymph nodes, then into the apical axillary lymph nodes via the supraclavicular... Hmm. These drain into the central axillary lymph nodes, then into the apical axillary lymph nodes, then into the supraclavicular lymph nodes. How do the right and left lymphatic subclavian... How do the right and left subclavian lymphatic trunks drain? So the right subclavian trunk can join either the right jugular and the bronchomediastinal trunks to form the right lymphatic duct or it can enter the right venous angle independently. The left lymphatic trunk joins the thoracic duct. So going over that again, describe the superficial lymphatic drainage of the upper limb. So the superficial lymphatics originate from the lymphatic plexi in the hand and it's seen mostly with the cephalic and basilar veins. Some accompanying the basilar basilar vein will enter the cubital fossa. There they will drain into the humeral axillary veins and then into the apical axillary lymph nodes. Most travel with the cephalic vein and enter the apical axillary lymph nodes, but some enter the deltopectorial lymph nodes earlier. So mostly they travel with the cephalic vein and they enter the apical axillary lymph nodes. Some of them go with the um, basilar vein and they can enter the cubital fossa and then they'll end up in the humeral axillary veins and then into the apical axillary lymph nodes. Describe the drainage of the deep lymphatics. So the deep lymphatics accompany the major deep vessels. So um, the major deep veins, sorry, and they terminate in the humeral auxiliary lymph nodes. They drain into the central axillary nodes, then into the apical lymph nodes, and then the supraclavicular right and left subclavian trunks. So um, that's cas so central apical supraclavicular subclavian. So how do the right and left subclavian lymphatic trunks drain? So the right subclavian trunk can join the right jugular and bronchomediastinal trunks to form the right lymphatic duct. so it can the right subclavian trunk can join the right jugular and bronchomediastinal trunks to form the right lymphatic duct or it can enter the right venous angle independently the left lymphatic trunk joins the thoracic duct easy peasy and just as a side note with um, an axillary lymph node dissection where you remove and analyze the axillary nodes you can result in lymphoedema lymphedema um, but there's also risk of damage to the long thoracic nerve which can cause a winged scapula or you can damage the thoracodorsal nerve. Describe the course of the median nerve. <clears throat> so it emerges from the cubital fossa, um, with the median and... Oh, sorry. So initially, it arises um, from the unation of the medial and lateral cords. It emerges from the cubital fossa, Passes between the two heads of the pronator teres, it descends deep to the flexor digitorum superficialis, and um, continues distally between the superficialis and profundus. The flexor digitorum um, becomes superficial at the wrist, where it passes between the flexor digitorum superficialis and the flexor carpi radialis. On the lateral aspect of the wrist, and it will d- be deep to the pulmaris longus if it's present. It passes under the flexor redinaculum. Um, so basically it starts in the cubital fossa, dies between the flexors and the anterior compartment of the forearm um, after slipping between the heads of the pronator teres. Um, and then it's partially obscured and then it slips under the flexor retinaculum where it's found between the flexor digitorum superficialis and flexor carpi radialis on the thumb side, it's partially obscured by the palmaris longus if it's present. Um... So just a bit more detail taking it from Teach Me Anatomy. The median nerve is derived from the medial and lateral cords of the brachial plexus. It contains fibres from roots C6 to T1 and can contain fibres from C5 in some individuals. After originating from the brachial plexus in the axilla, the median nerve descends down the arm. Initially, it'll be lateral to the brachial artery. Halfway down the arm, the nerve crosses over the brachial artery and becomes medial. The median nerve enters the anterior compartment of the forearm via the cubital fossa. In the forearm, the nerve travels between the flexor digitorum profundus and the flexor digitorum superficialis. It gives off two major branches in the forearm so it gives off the anterior interosseous nerve, which supplies the deep muscles in the anterior forearm, and the palmar cutaneous nerve, which innervates the skin of the lateral palm. After giving off the anterior interosseous and palmar cutaneous branches, the median nerve ends in the hand via the carpal tunnel, where it terminates by dividing into the recurrent branch and the palmar digital branch. So, the recurrent branch will innervate the thenar muscles, the abductor, um, and the palmar digital branch will innervate the palmar surface of the fingertips of the lateral three and a half digits, as well as the lateral two lumbricals. Um, Clinical relevance, Um, so compression of the median nerve within the carpal tunnel can cause carpal tunnel syndrome, it's the most common mononeuropathy, Um, risks include diabetes, pregnancy and acromegaly, you get numbness, tingling and pain in the distribution of the median nerve, the palm is usually spared as the cutaneous branch does not travel through the carpal tunnel. The palm is usually spared, as the palmar branch does not travel through the carpal tunnel. Can cause weakness and atrophy of the thenar muscles. Can be tested by Tenelle's sign, i.e. tapping the nerve in the carpal tunnel to elicit pain in the median nerve distribution, or Phalen's manoeuvre holding the wrist in flexion for 60 seconds to elicit pain in the region. Um, So, motor functions. The median nerve innervates the majority of the muscles in the anterior forearm and some of the intrinsic hand muscles. So, half loaf. So, it's half the lumbricals, the opponent's pollicis, the abductor pollicis, and the flexor pollicis. So, the superficial and the forearm, the superficial layers it supplies is the pronator teres, the flexor carpi radialis, and the palmaris longus. And in the intermediate layer, it supplies the flexor digitorium superficialis. So that's directly from the median nerve. But when it gives off the anterior interosseous nerve, it supplies the deep layer, which is your flexor pollicis longus, so the three P's, Flexor pollicis longus, pronator quadratus, and the lateral half of the flexor digitorum profundus. So flexor pollicis longus, pronator quadratus, and the lateral half of the flexor digitorum profundus. Um, in the hand, it gives off the recurrent nerve, supplying the thenar eminence and the palmar digital branch, which also supplies the lumbricals remembering that the lumbricals perform flexion at the MCPs and extension at the IPs. And it has um, supply, the digital cutaneous branch will supply the fingers on the palmar side and also the tips on the dorsal side. Um, if you damage the median nerve at the elbow, the flexors and pronators in the forearm are paralyzed, with the exception of the flexor carpi ulnaris and the medial half of the flexor digitorum profundus, so the, the forearm is constantly supinated or facing upwards, um, and the wrist flexion is weak and it's often accompanied by adduction because of the pull of the flexor carpi ulnaris. Um, so just the opposite of if you have an ulnar nerve lesion um, and flexion at the thumb is also prevented as both the longest and brevis flexor muscles are paralyzed the lateral two lumbricals are affected and the patient will not be able to flex the MCP joints or extend at the IP joints of the index and the middle fingers. Um, characteristic signs, the thenar eminence is wasted due to atrophy of the thenar muscles. If the patient tries to make a fist, only in the little, only the little and ring figures can flex completely, and it results in a hand of benediction shape. If it's damaged at the wrist, um, then the thenar muscles are paralyzed and the lateral lumbricals, and it affects opposition of the thumb, and flexion of the index and middle fingers. And the hand is held in the same way, but the forearm is unaffected, so it's not supinated and adducted. And wrist flexion should be fine. Right. Um, So that is the median nerve. So, just in terms of um, where it's anatomical course, so it's derived from the medial and lateral cords contains fibres from C5 to T1, it descends down the arm, um, sort of slightly medially. Um, It's initially lateral to the brachial artery, then medial to it, and it enters the forearm by the cubital fossa, gives off the anterior interosseous nerve which supplies the deep muscles in the anterior forearm and the palmar cutaneous nerve. which innervates the skin of the lateral palm. The recurrent branch in the hand innervates the thenar muscles, and the palmar digital branch supplies the palm and the fingers. Cool. So moving on. Um. The snuff box. So it's bordered by the extensor pollicis longus laterally, and the extensor pollicis brevis medially, um, and so it's a brevis sandwich. Lateral to the extensor pollicis brevis, you have the ad- abductor pollicis longus. So just recapping, the borders of the snuff box, so on the ulna or the medial side, you have the tender of the extensor pollicis longus, so that's most deep in the hand. Then you have the lateral border, which is the tendon of the adductor, abductor pollicis longus, and next to it, the extensor pollicis brevis. So, it looks like the extensor pollicis brevis is slightly medial to the abductor pollicis longus, which is the most lateral. So, it's a brevis sandwich. There's two, two longs, and in the middle you've got the extensor pollicis brevis. So the extensor pollicis longus, extensor pollicis brevis, abductor pollicis longus. And on the floor, you've got the scaphoid and the trapezium. The proximal border, you've got the styloid process of the radius. And the roof is just skin. So um, note that in the hand, after the flexor retinaculum, the median nerve gives off a muscular branch to the thenar eminence, and that the medial and lateral mixed branches with sensory and motor actions on the palm of the hand innervate the skin of the ventral surface of the radial three and a half fingers and the first two lumbricals. Also remember that the median nerve gives off branches to the proximal radio-ulnar joint and the inferior radio-ulnar joint, the wrist and the the wrist and the carpal joints. Um, what functional deficits result from a Radial nerve injury in the mid-arm and why? So the elbow extension is preserved because the medial and the long head of the triceps is given off in the arm prior to the radial groove. Um, So it can be injured in the mid-arm like in a mid-humeral shaft fracture and it will be damaged in the radial groove. Um, so elbow extension is preserved, but potentially slightly weakened because the the medial head will be affected. Um, wrist drop will occur because of inability to extend the wrist, and the metacarpal phalangeal joints. So inability to extend the wrist and the MCP joints. Um, but the, the extension of the interphalangeal joints will be preserved because of the interosse and lumbrical action. Um, so you get de of the brachoradialis extensor carpi radialis longus. Um, so going one, two, three, four, five. Um, extensor so the brachioradialis extensor carpi radialis longus extensor carpi radialis longus extensor carpi radialis brevis extensor digitorum extensor digiti minimi and the extensor carpi ulnaris and then under that you have the deep layers so the deep extensor so you have the conius the the abductor pollicis longus, extensor pollicis brevis, and extensor pollicis longus, which are the thumb muscles, and then the extensor indice. Um, and again, the interphalangeal joint extension is maintained due to lumbricals and interossei function being intact. If the injury occurs in the radial groove or the spir- spiral groove, The triceps will be weakened as the medial branch is affected, but the lateral and long heads arise proximal to the radial groove. Yeah, so if the injury occurs in the radial groove, the triceps will be weakened as the medial branch is affected, but the lateral and long heads arise proximal to the radial groove. The muscles of the posterior forearm will be affected, wrist drop ensues, and the sensory function, while the cutaneous branches to the arm and the forearm have already arisen, So the superficial branch of the radial nerve will be damaged, resulting in sensory loss of the dorsal surfaces of the lateral three and a half digits and their associated palm area. Um, But the sensation to the back of the arm and forearm will be fine. And describe the course of the radial nerve in the arm. So it's from nerve root C5 to T1. It innervates the triceps and the extensor muscles of the forearm. Um, it innervates most of the skin of the posterior side of the forearm and the dorsal surface of the lateral side of the palm, the natural three and a half fingers. And the radial nerve travels most of the way with a profunda branch of the radial artery. So what's its path? Um... It arises in the axilla, where it's posterior to the axillary artery. It exits the the axillary region inferiorly via the triangular interval and supplies the branches of the long and lateral heads of the triceps brachii. It then runs between the long and medial heads. The radial nerve then descends down the arm, traveling in a shallow groove called the radial groove, where it will travel alongside of the profunda branch of the radial artery. It pierces the lateral intermuscular septum to enter the anterior forearm. At the level of the elbow, it travels anterior to lateral epicondyle and in the cubital fossa, divides into superficial and deep branches. It lies between the brachialis and the brachioradialis, giving direct innervation to both of these as well as the extensor carpi radialis longaris. Whew. The deep branch innervates the muscles of the posterior compartment of the forearm where it lies between the superficial and deep muscles and is known as the posterior interosseous nerve. And it moves along with the posterior interosseous artery. Um, And it will innervate the dorsum of the lateral hand and fingers. So basically... Um, arises from the axilla, where it's posterior to the axillary artery, exits the axilla through the triangular interval, supplies branches to the long and lateral heads of the triceps, runs between, runs through the radial groove with the profunda branch of the radial artery. Then it pierces the lateral intermuscular septum to enter the anterior forearm. At the level of the elbow, it runs anterior to the lateral epicondyle, and in the cubital, fossa divides into superficial and deep branches. Um, It directly innervates the brachialis, brachioradialis and extensor carpi radialis longus. Then it divides into superficial and deep branches. The deep, after it goes through the supinator, becomes the posterior interosseous nerve. Um, And the superficial branch provides the innervation to the lateral hand and fingers. Um, And it also... So... It innervates all the extensors, but it also innervates the brachioradialis, which is actually a flexor at the wrist. Um, Describe the course of the ulnar nerve around the elbow. Um, so the ulnar nerve um, at the elbow passes posteriorly to the medial epicondyle of the humerus, where it's very superficial and prone to injury. And then um, just has some more information. So it's a continuation. The ulnar nerve is a continuation of the medial cord. It contains nerve roots C8 to T1. After arising from the brachial plexus from the medial cord it descends down the medial aspect of the upper arm. At the elbow it passes posterior to the medial epicondyle and gives rise to an articular branch that supplies the elbow joint. Here as it runs posterior to the medial epicondyle it's palpable and vulnerable to injury. Um, In the forearm it pierces two heads it pierces the two heads of the flexor carpi ulnaris. So um, it's kind of similar to how the median nerve goes through the two heads of the pronator teres. Um, pierces the two heads of the flexor carpi ulnaris and travels deep to the muscle alongside the ulna. Three main branches arise in the forearm. So, the muscular branch, which supplies the flexor carpi ulnaris and the medial half of the flexor digitorum profundus, the palmar cutaneous branch, which which supplies the medial half of the palm, and the dorsal cutaneous branch, which innervates the medial one and a half fingers and the dorsal hand area. At the wrist, the ulnar nerve travels superficial to the flexor retiniculum and it lies just medial to the ulnar artery. Um, it travels in Guyon's canal, and the artery, which is lateral to it, is outside of Guyon's canal. Um, in the hand, it terminates, giving superficial and deep branches, and it innervates pretty much all the muscles of the hand, apart from the lateral two lumbricals and the thena eminence. So it supplies the hypothena eminence. The median two lumbricals, the abductor pollicis, the palma and dorsal interossei, and the palma brevis. Um. So remember that the median nerve gives off the adductor pollicis, which is important because you do the Froman sign where you look for paralysis of this muscle, the addu- adductor pollicis. So you get someone to hold a piece of paper between their index finger and their thumb and if they end up extending the thumb at the IP joint that indicates weakness of the adductor muscle and potential ulnar nerve lesion. The sensory branches of the hand include the palmar and superficial cutaneous branches of the palmar surface of the hand and the phalanges and the dorsal cutaneous branch supplying the medial dorsum of the hand. So ulnar nerve palsy commonly occurs at the level of the medial epicondyle, like if you have an epicondylar fracture or a medial super, supracondylar fracture, and it can be compressed in the cubital fossa as well. Um, So at the level of the elbow, if damage occurs there, you can still flex the wrist, but because it's mainly done, or it's all going to be done through median nerve, the flexi carpi ulnaris and the flexor digitorum superficialis, I mean profundus, will be weakened. So the flexion will occur with a degree of abduction or radial deviation as well. and abduction and adduction of the fingers doesn't occur because of loss of the interossei. Movement of the fourth and fifth digits is impaired due to paralysis of not only the interossei but the lumbricals as well and the hypothenar muscles. Um, but you'll still get a little bit of... Innovation occurring from the flexor digitorum superficialis, and the extensor muscles, obviously. Um, adduction of the thumb is impaired, so you get the positive froman sign, and loss of sensation over the medial aspect of the front and the back of the hand. If it's damaged at the level of the hand, like a, a wrist lack, um, the motor functions, so You'll lose the intrinsic muscles of the hand, so abduction and, and adduction of the fingers, um, movements of the fourth and fifth digits is impaired due to the loss of the lumbaricals and the hypothenar eminence, and adduction of the thumb. And sensation of the dorsum of the hand is usually intact because um, that branch comes off sooner, but the palmar innervation is lost. And the answer from the um, ED Viva is that the sensation to the medial hand and fingers is lost. You can't flex or adduct at the wrist, um, but flexion and abduction is intact. Um, and flexion at the distal, fourth, and fifth fingers is lost because of the loss of the FDP flexion and abduction of the 5th MCPJ because of loss is lost because of the loss of the hypothenar eminence. You can't adduct the thumb and you can't abduct and adduct the 4th and 5th fingers. But actually you shouldn't be able to abduct or adduct the 2nd and 3rd either because even though they'll have the lumbrical action, that's only meant to cause flexion at the MCP and extension at the IP. So the ulnar interossei action will be lost. And how could you differentiate an ulnar nerve lesion at the elbow at one from the wrist? So, the claw would be more pronounced if you had a more distal lesion because the flexor carpi ulnaris and the flexor digitorum profundus are preserved, um, but you'll have a loss of the lumbrical and interosseous action. Um, and in addition to this, you would anticipate this: that the sensation to the dorsum of the hand would be intact. What are the relations um, in terms of muscles to the clavicle? So you have the deltoid on the um, on the lateral one third of the lower surface of the clavicle, and then the trapezius will be. Reflecting that, but on the lateral upper third um, with a slightly posterior attachment. The pec major will be on the medial third anteriorly and inferiorly. The sternocloid or mastoid will, its clavicular head um, attaches to the medial third anterior and superiorly, so sort of reflecting up above the pec major. And then don't forget the subclavius, sneaking under from sort of like the middle third um, and then travelling medially to attach to the head of the first rib. What are the anatomical relations of the medial third of the clavicle? So um, on the medial aspect it will um, relate to the sternoclavicular joint, the manubrial notch and posteriorly, it'll articulate with the first rib, the brachiocephalic vein, which is medial to the um, scalinus anterior, the internal jugular, the subclavian vein, um, the subclavius muscle, the phrenic nerve which is more posterior Um, the apical pleura and on the left you'll have the thoracic duct Um, and anteriorly superiorly and inferiorly you'll have just good old subcut tissue um, and some skin So, going over that again, medially, you'll have the stenoclavicular joint and the manubrial notch. Um, Posteriorly, you'll have the first rib, the brachiocephalic vein, um, the internal jugular and the subclavian vein. So, the brachiocephalic, internal jugular, subclavian vein, subclavius, phrenic nerve, apical pleura, and on the left, you'll have the thoracic duct, and then subcut tissue and skin. Describe the course of the subclavian vein. So it becomes the subclavian vein from the axillary vein, medial to the outer border of the first rib. So that's the same as the axillary artery becomes the axillary artery at the um, outer border of the first rib. And it courses medially posterior to the clavicle which you can see, and superior to the flat section of the first rib, so it's got a groove that it'll pass through, Um, and it lies immediately anterior to the scalenus anterior, which separates it from the subclavian artery. So it's in front of the scalenus anterior, and behind the scalenus anterior you have the subclavian artery. It becomes the Brachiocephalic vein at the medial border of the scalenus anterior when it joins the internal jugular vein. So basically, the scalenus anterior separates it from the um, subclavian artery, but it also separates it from the part where it will become the brachiocephalic, where the internal jugular vein joins it. So, going over that again, um, the axillary vein becomes the subclavian vein. Um, just medial to the outer border of the first rib. It courses medially posterior to the clavicle, superior to the flat section of the first rib. And it lies immediately anterior to the scalenus anterior, which separates it from the subclavian artery. So there's a scalenus sandwich and becomes the brachiocephalic vein at the medial border of the scalenus anterior when it joins the internal jugular vein. The rotator cuff. So, um, the four muscles are SITS, subscapularis, um, infraspinatus, teres minor, supraspinatus. So the three on the back is the teres minor, the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. So. starting from the bottom you have the teres minor which attaches from the upper two-thirds of the lateral border of the scapula and inserts onto the greater trochanter Um, it's innervated by the axillary nerve and its action is in lateral rotation of the arm. You can't say anything, teres minor, lateral rotator of the arm, perfect. Um, Then above that you have the infraspinatus, so that's quite a big muscle and it attaches from the medial aspect of the scapula, the posterior surface of the scapula. So the medial two-thirds of the infraspinatus fossa and the deep surface infraspinatus fascia, which covers the muscle. And then it will insert onto the central facet of the greater tuberosity. And it, along with its um, supraspinatus, is innervated by the suprascapula. So the spinati are innervated by the suprascapula. Um, With nerve roots C5 and C6. And so the supraspinatus inserts from the medial two-thirds of the supraspinatus fossa and the deep surface of the infraspinatus oh no it doesn't say anything about the fascia this time so just the medial two thirds of the supraspinatus fossa and inserts on the upper part of the greater tuberosity of the humerus and it's innervated by the suprascapular nerve its action is in um initiating abduction and along with the other muscles holding the humeral head down. Oh no, all the other muscles hold the humeral head down. So it is the one abductor of the rotator cuff. So it arises from the medial two-thirds of the supraspinatus fossa and is innervated by the suprascapular scapular nerve along with the infraspinatus. And then finally, you have the subscapularis, which arises from the medial two-thirds of the costal surface of the scapula, and it's innervated by its own nerve, um, the subscapular upper and lower nerves. And it um, fuses with the joint capture of the shoulder, but it also inserts onto the lesser tuberosity. So all the three from the back insert on the greater tuberosity, and the one from the front inserts on the lesser tuberosity. So just going over that again, the supra and infraspinatus are both um, innervated by the suprascapular nerve. And they come from the medial two-thirds of their respective fosses. The teres minor comes from the lateral upper two-thirds of the border of the scapula and it's innervated by the axillary nerve and inserts along with the supra and infraspinatus onto the greater trochanter. The subscapularis is innervated by the subscapularis nerve and it comes from the subscapularis fossa and it inserts onto the lesser trochanter. In terms of their actions, just imagining them wrapping around the joint, they all stabilize the shoulder joint. The supraspinatus abducts, the teres minor and the infraspinatus laterally or externally rotate, and also the teres minor has a role in adduction, and then the, sup- and the subscapularis acts to medially rotate. Boom. Done. Just a small extra note, the supraspinatus is innervated from root C4 to C6 of the suprascapular nerve, whereas the infraspinatus is just the lower two of those, so C5 and C6, again by the suprascapular nerve. The teres minor is by the axillary nerve and is root C5, C6, and the subscapularis is by the subscapular nerve and is root C5 to C7. Um... So on the, in terms of the main features of the scapula, note the glenoid cavity, the spine, the supra and infraspinatus fossae, the subscapular fossa, the acromion and the coracoid process, and the other things that you can add in is the suprascapular scap- notch, the supra and infraglenoid tubercles. Remembering that the supra glenoid tubercle is where the long head of the biceps brachii attaches and that the short head um, attaches onto the coracoid process um, and then the angles and the borders. So demonstrate the bone attachments of the scapula, scapular muscles. So remembering that the deltoid it wraps right around the shoulder joint So. Posteriorly it attaches to the spine of the scapula, then comes around attaching to the chromium and then at the front it's attached to the lateral third of the clavicle. The supraspinatus attaches from to the supraspinatus fossa, the infraspinatus, the infraspinatus fossa, the teres minor to the upper two-thirds of the lateral border of the scapula, the teres minor to the posterior surface of the inferior angle. Um, So below the teres minor, and then the subscapularis to the subscapular fossa. What are the articulating surfaces in the shoulder joint? So it's a ball and socket type synovial joint. You've got the rounded head of the humerus, and then a shallow glenoid cavity of the scapula. um, And the cavity is deepened by the labrum. So it's a ball and socket joint, rounded head of the humerus, shallow glenoid cavity of the scapula, deepened by the labrum. And um, what structures stabilise the shoulder joint? So the fibrocartilaginous glenoid labrum, um, the coracoacromial arch, the anterior glenohumeral ligaments, the coracohumeral ligament, the transverse humeral ligament. The rotator cuff muscles, so supra and infraspinatus, teres minor and subscapulus. Um But basically you just need the rotator cuff muscles and only three of them and then two other things to pass. So the fibrocartilaginous glenoid labrum, the coracoacromial arch, anterior glenohumeral ligament, um, the coracohumeral ligament, the transverse humeral ligament. Um, and the rotator cuff muscles. What muscles are responsible for abduction and adduction of the shoulder joint? So abduction is the deltoid, especially the um, acromial part, which makes sense because that's where it's attaching. Um, and the supraspinatus, which initiates abduction. In um, adduction, you've got the pec major, the lat dorsi, the teres major, um, and the long head of the triceps, but actually there's also the um, teres minor, so the deltoid, the supraspinatus, do abduction, and then adduction is the pec major and the lat dorsi, acting in concert, um, which makes sense, coming from either side, um and then the teres major and the long head of the triceps so the teres major coming from the front the long head of the triceps coming from the back um yeah so teres major long head of triceps pec major and lap dorsal what muscles are responsible for other movements at the shoulder so in terms of flexion um, the pec major, the clavicular head, will initiate flexion. And also the deltoid, the clavicular head, and the anterior acromial bit. And the coraco. Coraco brachialis is a synergist. Extension is the spinal part of the deltoid, the lat dorsi, the teres major, and the long head of the triceps. So I'm um, kind of similar to the adductors really, um, the spinal part of the deltoid, the lat dorsi, the teres major and the long head of the triceps. Inflection flexion again is pec major, deltoid, coracobrachialis. Extension is the spinal part of the deltoid, the lat dorsi, the teres major and the long head of the triceps. Medial rotation is the subs- subscapularis, the pec major, the lat dorsi. That's interesting. The teres major and part of the deltoid. Um lateral rotation is the infraspinatus, the teres minor, and the spinal part of the deltoid. So just to do that again, pick major, oh, so flexion, pick major, and the deltoid, both of the clavicular heads, and the coraco brachialis, extension is the spinal part of the deltoid, the lat dorsi, the teres major, and the long head of the triceps. Um, medial rotation is a sub subscapularis, the pec major the lat dorsi, teres major and the clavicular part of the deltoid um, so actually the deltoid does everything apart from extension um, and lateral rotation is the spinatus, the teres minor and the deltoid. So you just have to think about where they all insert and so what actions they're going to do. And just bonus question, outline the bursa of the shoulder, so the subscap bursa between the scapula and the subscap tendon, and the subacromial or subdeltoid between the acromion, the chromium, and the deltoid um, and the supraspinatus so yeah just the subscapular and the subacromial and that facilitates the movement of the supraspinatus tendon Um, identify the features on the shoulder so the humerus the scapula coronoid process coracoid process the acromion the spine body clavicle uh, the glenohumeral and acromioclavicular joints and then um, the coracoclavicular ligaments so the lateral trapezoid bit and then the medial conoid part and they're most important for the stability of the acromioclavicular joint um, and then in terms of the acromioclavicular joint just identifying where it is and then the glenohumeral ligaments so that, that form the capsule around the shoulder so they're inferior middle and superior aspects Um, and they reinforce the anterior part of the capsule from the glenoid labrum to the humerus Um, and then the long head of the biceps tendon which overlying it it will have the transverse humeral ligament Um, and what anatomical structures confer stability to the joint so the to the shoulder joint the joint capsule the fusion of the tendons of the scapular muscles, the ligaments, the glenohumeral and coracohumeral ligaments, the coracoacromial arch superiorly, um, created by the coracoacromial ligament. So, the glenohumeral and coracohumeral ligaments, the coracoacromial arch, the deepening of the glenoid cavity by the glenoid labrum, and the tendons of the long head of biceps and triceps. And um, what Structures can be injured by a shoulder dislocation. So, the main one to remember is the axillary nerve because it lies below the joint capsule. Um, but you can fracture the greater tubercle, and you can use your capsule, um, and the glenoid labrum, predisposing to recurrent dislocations of the shoulder. Mm. Open sesame. Places where the um, proximal sites of the humerus that can cause fracture and injury. So at the neck of the humerus you can injure the axillary and brachial plexus. At the mid shaft you can cause a radial nerve palsy resulting in wrist drop and a sensory deficit. Describe the boundaries of the cubital fossa. So superiorly, you have an imaginary line between the epicondyles of the humerus. Medially, you have the lateral border of the pronator teres and laterally, the medial border of the brachioradialis. The floor is the brachialis and the roof is the deep fascia reinforced by the bicipital aponeurosis, subcut tissue and skin. So superiorly, an imaginary line between the superior epicondyles between the epicondyles of the humerus um medially the lateral border of the pronator teres laterally the um brachioradialis medial border the floor is the brachialis and the roof is the deep fascia reinforced by the bicipital aponeurosis and then just subcut tissue and skin Majority line between the epicondyles of the humerus, lateral border of the pronator teres, medial border of the brachioradialis, floor is the brachialis and roof is the deep fascia reinforced by the bicipital aponeurosis, subcut tissue and skin. And what are the contents of the cubital fossa? So you've got the radial nerve, the superficial terminal branch, the biceps tendon, the brachial artery dividing into the radial artery and the ulnar artery, the median nerve, and the brachialis. So just remember an um, an easy way to remember the structures of the cubital fossa is f- going from lateral to medial. Really need b two b at my nicest. Really need b two b at my nicest. Really need is radial nerve b two biceps tendon b at brachial artery my nicest median nerve. And the contents of the fossa from medial to lateral are the median nerve, brachial artery, tendons of the biceps, um, radial nerve, and its posterior interosseous branch. The cubital fossa is a triangle area between the pronator teres brachioradialis and a line ju- ju- joining the humeral epicondyles. The ulnar artery passes deep to the deep head of the pronator teres. The brachial artery enters the cubital fossa in the midline, halfway down the fossa, it divides into the radial ulnar arteries. The radial artery usually appears to be a direct continu- continuation of the brachial artery. Really? Yeah, and the bigger ulnar artery branches off at an angle. Sweet. Which structures lie deep to the flexor retinaculum at the wrist? The flexor digitorum superficialis and profundus, the flexor pollicis longus, the median nerve, and maybe the flexor carpi radialis, but we don't really know, so... The flexor digitorum in profundus and the flexor pollicis, the median nerve, and maybe the flexor carpi radialis, but definitely the flexor carpi ulnaris goes above, and um, its nerve is in the Guyon canal.